I'm gonna show you how great I am. This was our tiny fella. I just wanna say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is episode two of The Life of Julius Caesar. Have you ever been in a position where you were put in a leadership role in a new organization? It can be a really difficult position to be in. Not only is your work new with new tasks and new responsibilities, but your team is new as well. And you have to find a way to quickly get them to buy into your leadership, even as you yourself are trying to figure out what you are doing. Well, when we left off Caesar last episode, he had gotten the ultimate new job with a new company. He had just finished being consul in Rome and now was headed off to become governor of Gaul, a territory that roughly corresponds to modern-day France, Belgium, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. And he was in charge of more than 20,000 men who he had never met before, and the stakes are life or death, and he was about to embark into a new exotic foreign territory. And so this portion of his life is a masterclass in how to handle a new situation where you need to quickly gain the trust of people following you. Now, when I say that Gaul was exotic and new and foreign, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, I have seen France on a map and it is right next to Italy, so how foreign could this really be? But Gaul inhabited a pretty unique place in the ancient world. In the modern world, we group territory by land. When we talk about geography now, we talk about continents and countries, and that works. We have a continent called Europe, and we instinctively group all those countries together. And that makes sense. Italy, France, Denmark, England, all these countries have a lot in common. They're more similar to each other than countries you would find in Africa or Asia. Think Tunisia or Lebanon. But in the ancient world, places were more grouped together by water than they were by land. And that was because people traded and transported stuff more often by boat, especially over long distances. So to the Romans, the known world to them was not Europe. It was the Mediterranean. Northern Europe was a world away. To sail a ship hundreds of miles to Turkey was hard, but very doable. Pulling a wagon hundreds of miles up to Germany? Well, that was much more difficult and expensive, and it was something that no one did. So the Mediterranean was its own world, and Northern Europe was a totally different world. Rome would have had much more in common with the people of Tunisia or Lebanon than they would have had with people of Denmark or England. And Gaul was in a unique position because it bridged those two worlds. The parts of Gaul that were close to the Mediterranean and close to Rome had started to become what they would call civilized and sort of Mediterraneanized. In fact, two parts of Gaul were so thoroughly in the Roman orbit that the Romans had taken them over and made them provinces of Rome. The first was what is now northern Italy. And at the time, it wasn't northern Italy. It was southeastern Gaul. But that is why today, if you go to a city like Milan which is in the far north of Italy, in some ways it has more in common with the Swiss and French than with other Italian cities like Rome or Naples. This region of Gaul in what is now northern Italy was called Cisalpine Gaul. And Cisalpine means on this side of the Alps. So it was the region of Gaul that was on the same side of the Alps as Rome, Cisalpine Gaul. The other province was called Transalpine Gaul which means on the other side of the Alps, and it included a sliver of southern France, including cities like Marseille. And again, this province was thoroughly Roman at this point. It had been such an important province for so long that the Romans started to just call it the province. The name stuck, and that is why this part of southern France is to this day known as Provence. So these parts of Gaul 
are thoroughly Romanized, and they don't feel very foreign. They feel kind of Mediterranean. But the further north you go, the stranger and more foreign it gets. By the time you get up to Normandy and Belgium, you are in the northern European world, and it's completely foreign. It's cold. It is full of these dense forests and impenetrable swamps. The Gauls here are considered totally savage and barbaric. They're wild, tall, fierce, super white, and scary to the Romans. And to be fair, the Gauls were, frankly, less advanced than the Romans. And this is especially true politically speaking. Their primary political unit was still the tribe. They were mostly rural farmers. Raiding and plundering rival tribes was still a major part of life for the Gauls. So Caesar is assigned to govern the two Roman provinces, Cisalpine Gaul and Transalpine Gaul. But he hasn't even reached his new territory yet when he gets some bad news that is going to force him to go further north. There was a tribe of Gauls, the Helvetii, who lived in the Alps in modern-day Switzerland. And on the foreignness scale, they are sort of a medium, they're a sea. They are fairly close to, but not actually in Roman territory. And the Helvetii decided that they had had enough of this area and they were going to move their entire tribe. The main problem with their territory is it's small and bounded by mountains. So as their population expands, they have nowhere to go. And this is especially true of a society that is agricultural and relies on raiding as a major part of life. If you are shut in by these mountains, where do you expand and who do you raid? So the Helvetii decide they are going to pull up stakes and move their entire tribe over to southwest France. They spend two years preparing. They're gathering grain and packing up their stuff and so on. And after two years, they're ready to go. So they set fire to their old villages to discourage anyone from turning around and head out for their new home. Well, the Romans are not pleased about this for a number of reasons. The first is the Helvetii are going to be passing through and by Transalpine Gaul. And of course, they're going to raid. That is what Gauls do. And the Romans naturally don't want their own land raided. And the second reason is it's a disruption to the power balance. Things were working pretty well for the Romans. If you have this big tribe moving to southwestern Gaul, maybe they displace another tribe. And now that tribe has to look somewhere else for land. And maybe after a chain effect of dominoes, some tribe tries to invade Roman territory. So they were always suspicious of big movements of peoples because it could disrupt this power balance. The third reason they didn't like it was because it left a vacuum of power in Switzerland where the Helvetii had been. And the Romans' big fear is that some Germans might move in. Gauls were foreign and different and scary, but in the minds of the Romans, Germans were like super Gauls. They considered them to be truly ferocious, uncivilized barbarians, and they did not want them as neighbors. So when Caesar hears that the Helvetii are on the move, he takes immediate action. He raises some more troops and races to an area near the modern-day city of Geneva with his men, and they block the path of the Helvetii. And the Helvetian leadership calls for a meeting with Caesar and asks him, hey, what's going on? Can we pass? And Caesar says, I need to think about it, come back in three weeks, and I'll let you know. And he doesn't really need any time to think about it, but what he needs is time to prepare. So he raises even more troops and uses them to build this massive wall. They're in a narrow mountain valley in Switzerland. So Caesar has his men block the whole thing off by building this wall that is 19 miles long and 18 feet high. It has a ditch in front and forts positioned at regular intervals. It's really well defended. And they build this in just three weeks. This is something that the Romans were really, really good at. Their soldiers were not just good fighters. They were like super boy scouts. They could put up full forts in hours and they could build these walls and bridges and siege works and all sorts of things and do it really, really quickly. They were incredible engineers. The Helvetii come back after a few weeks to see if Caesar has made up his mind 
and they see this massive wall and they must have immediately known what his decision was. But they weren't going to give up easily. They couldn't just go back, they had burned their villages. So they send little parties, little groups of people to try and break through the Roman wall at a few different points, but nothing works and a few of the Helvetians are killed. So they pack up and decide, okay, well, let's just try a different route. The only other route that they can take is going to be longer. They're going to have to go up north and go up and around to avoid being anywhere near Roman territory. And it's going to be more dangerous because they will have to take some really narrow mountain passes. But at this point, it's their only option. They can't get through the Roman soldiers. But now Caesar really can't let them move. Not only does he have some of the same problems and concerns as before with the Helvetians moving, but he's killed a few of them. So now you have an angry potential enemy on the move. So Caesar goes back to Cisalpine Gaul to gather more of his troops, and then he marches them at breakneck speed to intercept the Helvetii on their new northern route. Caesar was always known as a very fast marcher, and he lives up to his reputation here. And he finally catches up to the Helvetii near a river. They're crossing on a rickety raft bridge that they hastily constructed. Caesar waits and watches until about three-fourths of the Helvetii are across the river, and then he attacks the remaining one-fourth. It starts as a battle, but it quickly turns into a slaughter. And this first attack is a major victory for the Roman troops. Caesar's decision here to attack a fourth of the Helvetii is interesting. And supposedly he likes moving fast and being decisive and making stuff happen quickly. You'd think that he could score a big decisive victory, if not against the entire Helvetii tribe, then against a bigger portion of it than just one fourth. So why this minor engagement? Why not end the whole thing right there and have your big battle now? There's an interesting counterexample of someone who does exactly this. If you remember Crassus, he was the guy who was part of the first triumvirate with Caesar. He's the super rich property developer. Well, in a few years, he will get sent on a foreign assignment to Syria to go fight a people called the Parthians. And he thinks, okay, no one can stop Rome. Our forces are the best. Let's go get them. Decisive action, move quickly. Let's have a big battle now. So he immediately leads all his forces directly into this big battle and they are totally unprepared for the way that the Parthians fight. They have powerful composite bows that they shoot from horseback, and the Romans move too slowly to even get to them and engage with them, and the Romans are completely destroyed and Crassus is killed. And part of this is because it was their first engagement and they had no time to adjust. Here, Caesar is avoiding that kind of risk by getting his feet wet with a minor engagement with few stakes. And that's smart when you have a new situation. First, find a small battle with low stakes where you are pretty sure you can win, and make sure you know what this new environment is all about. That's what Caesar's doing here. Now his men know how the Gauls fight and they can make small adjustments before the big decisive battle. And as a bonus, they've also leveled the odds a little bit by wiping out a fourth of the enemy army. But this does mean he still needs to fight a decisive battle. And he doesn't want to just charge them head on because the Helvetii hugely outnumber his troops. So he's just stalking them, marching a few miles behind, waiting for an advantageous situation where he can nullify their numerical advantage and attack. And after a few days, he gets his opportunity when he finds out that the Helvetii are camped at the bottom of a hill. So he comes up with a plan to send out 8,000 troops in the middle of the night to go around the back of the hill and have them wait in secret at the top. Caesar will then lead the main body of his army, with 20,000 men or so, to attack the Helvetii camp. And once all the Helvetii are engaged with Caesar's main force, then the smaller division of 8,000, who is hidden at the top of this hill, will run down and attack from the high ground and crush the Helvetii between the two divisions. And this starts out going as planned. Caesar sends out the 8,000 men at night, they go to the top of the hill, and they wait. 
But when Caesar sends out a scout in the morning to see if they are in place on the hill, the scout comes back and says they're gone and the hill is swarming with Gauls. And Caesar, of course, figures they must have been found out and must have been attacked by the Helvetii and all these men have been killed. This is a total disaster. 8,000 men is a huge chunk of his army that Caesar could not afford to lose. Caesar figures if the Helvetii just wiped out 8,000 of my men, they must be coming for the rest of us. So he gets the rest of his men ready to put up a desperate last defense. And they wait and they wait and they wait for this big attack and it never comes. And finally, a messenger comes strolling up to Caesar and says, uh, guys, what's going on? We're still waiting here up on top of the hill. Why haven't you guys attacked yet? And it was a simple mix-up. Caesar's scout had been mistaken when he thought he saw Gauls all over the hill. There were no Gauls. It was just Caesar's troops that were supposed to be there. But the Helvetii at this point had moved on, and Caesar had lost his chance. And this was a pretty disheartening turn of events for Caesar. He has this new army. He's trying to gain their trust, and he starts out with an embarrassing and avoidable failure. It's even more dire than that. One of the reasons that Caesar had been seeking a decisive battle at this point was he only had two days worth of food left. So now he's in a bad position. He's just a few miles from a massive body of enemies, and he doesn't have enough food to feed his men. There was a nearby allied city that had ample food supplies, but it's in the opposite direction, and he would have to break off the chase from the Helvetii. But he can't just let his men starve, so he calls off the chase and heads for this city. When word gets to the Helvetii that the Romans have turned around and are going the opposite direction, they figure the Romans are in a really bad position. They're retreating. They must be really scared to fight us. So they turn around and pursue the Romans. And the Helvetii catch the Romans before they reach the city. So Caesar puts his legions up on a hill and prepares for this massive attack. The Romans always group their forces by legions, which were units of about 5,000 men. And Caesar puts all of his legions next to each other to form a line, except for two legions that were composed of totally new recruits who had never seen battle. He had those legions guard the baggage and doesn't let them fight. He figures it's better to have them out of the way than have them potentially panic and run away and freak everyone else out. And make no mistake, this was a very scary situation for the Romans. They're in a foreign land with no easy path home and no food. If they're defeated in this battle, they are all dead. So one thing he does to boost his men's confidence is Caesar gets off his horse and has it sent to the back of the army. He's basically saying, I'm in this with you guys. I have confidence in you. And if things go wrong, I'm not running away. I'm here with you guys. He's showing his men that he shares in the same danger that they do, and he believes in them. Well, the Helvetii get closer and closer, but Caesar doesn't wait for them to attack. Once they get close enough, he has his men rush down the hill and charge them. It turns into a big slog of a fight. Eventually, some Helvetian reinforcements show up on the right flank of the Romans, and getting flanked could be disastrous in ancient combat, but luckily Caesar always kept a reserve. He would always have a third of his men stay behind the front line and not immediately engage the enemy. So he takes the reserve and sends them out to face this new threat on their right flank. Keeping a reserve was something Napoleon also did to great effect. For both Caesar and Napoleon, many of their enemies would think, okay, if I have all these soldiers, why would I not want to use them all at once? You figure you want to overwhelm your enemy by using as many soldiers as possible. But Caesar and Napoleon were sticklers for keeping a portion of their forces in reserve. Often they would unleash this reserve at the decisive moment of the battle and turn the tide. My number one rule for life, something I always try to remember, is that things go wrong in ways that you do not expect. People often build very fragile systems that break down the second anything goes wrong. They have the perfect diet, 
but they eat one Oreo and all of a sudden they think, screw it, I guess I failed, diet over, I'm going to binge. Or think a financial portfolio that gives great returns, but then there's a recession and it totally crashes at a time when coincidentally is often when you need your money the most. But great leaders understand that life goes wrong in ways they do not expect and they stay prepared. They always keep a reserve. Now, even with Caesar sending his reserves to take on the flanking Helvetians, the battle turns into this tough hand-to-hand fighting that lasts into the night, but eventually the Romans prevail. There are massive Helvetian casualties, and those who remain have to beg Caesar for mercy. Caesar sends them all back to Switzerland to settle back into the land that they had left. According to Caesar, 300,000 Helvetii had set out, and now barely a third would be returning home. Tribes from all over Gaul come to congratulate Caesar, but there's no time to bask in his glory or gloat because these tribes tell Caesar about a new threat as well. The unofficial delineation marker between Gaul and Germany was the Rhine River. Well, a Germanic tribe had come over and started conquering land on the west side, the Gallic side of the river. So these tribal leaders are saying, hey, great job taking care of the Helvetii, thanks for that, but could you help us out with this German problem as well? Now, Caesar was already looking for war. War was how you made money, and he's looking to win more battles to add to his reputation as a great general. And furthermore, the Germans were like the boogeymen in Rome, and Romans hated the Germans. So a war against Germanic tribes is like the best-case scenario for Caesar. So he thinks great. And the leader of this particular German tribe was a guy by the name of Ariovistus. And at first, Caesar sends a message to Ariovistus and tells him to cut it out. And Ariovistus' response actually makes quite a bit of sense. He says, who do you think you are? We're not doing anything different from what you Romans are doing in the Mediterranean. You're a hypocrite. Stay out of our business. This is none of your concern. Well, Caesar doesn't care about his logic. He needs these Germans out of Gaul. So Caesar marches towards the Rhine to attack. But Caesar has a problem on the way. They start marching through some thick forests in eastern Gaul. Many of his men are very inexperienced, and as they are marching through these thick forests, they start to get really freaked out. You don't see this kind of stuff in Italy. They have never been in woods this big, deep, and dark. These are, for the most part, poor city boys who had never traveled outside their hometown. They had never even seen pictures of a forest like this. This might as well be an alien planet to them. It's really weird and scary. And they're going to face this enemy of savage Germanic barbarians. Here's how Caesar described what happened. Quote, a panic spread after conversations with the Gauls and the traders, who said that the Germans were a race of huge stature, incredible courage, and skill with weapons. They claimed that often when they met them, they had not been able to sustain even their glance and keen expressions. Then very suddenly, a great panic seized the entire army, dismaying the minds and spirits of all ranks. They were unable to conceal their depression, or at times hide their tears. They cowered in their tents to bemoan their fates, or gathered with friends to lament the common danger. Throughout the entire camp, men started to drop their wills. With these voices of despair, even men with long experience of campaigning, soldiers, centurions, and cavalry officers were affected. End quote. At one point, some men even start to say that they're not going forward anymore. They're not going to go do this. And take a moment to ask yourself, what would you do if you were Caesar? You're relatively new to this army. You've won a single big battle, but not everyone completely trusts you. And so do you ask for the soldier's trust? Do you plead with them? Do you turn around and say, forget it? And what Caesar does is call together his centurions. 
Centurions are the lowest ranking officers. They were typically common soldiers who had distinguished themselves in combat, and each one commanded roughly 80 soldiers, and they commanded them right from the front lines. So they're kind of a key link. They have access to Caesar and the army's top leadership, but they also are very close with the common soldiers. And so Caesar calls together these centurions, and he really takes them to task. He challenges their honor, and he makes a lot of points about why they shouldn't be scared. The Helvetii, who they have just defeated, had beaten German soldiers dozens of times before, and his own uncle Marius had defeated an army of Germans. And regardless of all that, they were obligated to obey as soldiers of Rome. And then he finishes with a stroke of genius. Caesar had a favorite legion, the 10th. They were distinguished for their bravery and their skill in combat. So he ends his speech to these centurions by saying, quote, I intend to break camp in the fourth watch of this coming night, so that I may see once and for all if duty and honor prevails in your hearts over fear. Anyway, even if no one else follows, I shall set out with just the 10th legion, for I have no doubt of its loyalty, and it will act as if it were my own guard. And then he turns to the centurions from the 10th, and he says, you guys are ready to march with me, right? And they're like, yeah, they're, they're pumped up. They're all in. He just called them out as the best. These guys love Caesar, especially right now. And of course, now all the other centurions from the other legions are tripping over themselves to say, oh no, we're coming too. They won't, we won't fail you. This was all just a misunderstanding. We're, we're ready to go. And this works, but Caesar doesn't take any chances. And he moves his army out of the forest and takes them on a longer route to get there. But it's through more open fields because he knows that this is good for morale. His soldiers don't like going through these deep, dark forests. Well, finally, they march up near Ariovistus and his armies. And the Romans build a couple forts. Again, they were great at this. They could pop them up overnight with walls, gates, a moat, some towers, the whole deal. And the Germans don't want to attack because the Romans are now in these forts. And the Romans also don't want to attack because the German camps are pretty well positioned as well. They also don't want to fight a straightforward fight because the Germans way outnumber them. So if it gets into a, you line up your guys, I'll line up mine, and let's duke it out, then that's likely not going to favor the Romans because they're so heavily outnumbered. So everyone is staying in their camps, waiting for the other side to attack. Men will venture out from time to time and skirmish with soldiers from the other side, but there are no big battles. However, eventually it gets really quiet, and there aren't even any skirmishes. So Caesar starts to wonder, huh, what's going on here? And he sends some men to do some reconnaissance. And what they find out is that the Germans don't want to fight, for a reason that we might find rather strange today. The Germans, like many people at the time, including the Romans, believed strongly in omens. They had diviners who would look for signs in the sky, the weather, and the movement of animals, and would declare what was blessed by the gods and what was not, what was unlucky and what was lucky. Well, the Germanic diviners had looked at the signs and declared that it would be very unlucky to fight a battle before the new moon, which was still a few days away. The gods did not condone it. So these Germans are convinced that if they fight before then, before the new moon, they will lose. So they are avoiding battle as much as possible. So what does Caesar do when he discovers this? He marches his army right up to the German camp and attacks. And remember, this is exactly the strategy he wanted to avoid. A straight-on battle where the Germans were in their camp and had some defenses. And yet, he fought it anyway because he understood how crucially important morale is. For me, this has been one of the big revelations of doing research for this podcast. Great leaders put such a large emphasis on the morale of the people they lead. Napoleon said that morale was three-fourths of the battle and physical considerations only the last fourth. And that is something that plays out here. 
Of course, the Germans don't just give up. When Caesar marches up to their camp, they form into units and fight, but they're tentative and scared because of these omens. It's still a pretty tough battle, but eventually Caesar succeeds and pushes through and sends these Germanic tribes back across the Rhine. Now that's two big victories for Caesar in less than a year. It's quite the resume for just one year of action, and his work for the year is basically done. In Caesar's time, campaigning almost always stopped for the winter. It was cold during the winter, there wasn't enough food, and the food that you did have was difficult to transport, especially in a place like Gaul where it snowed. So Caesar goes back to his headquarters in Cisalpine Gaul so that he can be closer to Rome. Before he leaves for his headquarters, the tribes of Gaul come to congratulate and thank him. They're ready to escort him and his legions back to Roman Gaul with full honors. But Caesar says, actually, I think I'm going to leave my troops here for the winter. And this is really ominous for the Gallic tribes. The war with the Germans was over. All the Romans should be leaving. And so the Gallic tribes start to suspect that Caesar isn't taking his troops back because he didn't want to just beat back the Helvetii and the Germanic invaders. They start to suspect that what Caesar really wanted all along was to invade and conquer all of Gaul. So there is trouble brewing over the winter. Back in Cisalpine Gaul, Caesar is writing letters, receiving visitors, and otherwise trying to stay active in Rome's political scene so that he isn't forgotten while he's off on campaign. But when spring comes, a collection of Gallic tribes called the Belgae decide they didn't sign up to have Caesar in charge of all of Gaul, and they raise an army to fight him. The Belgae were a collection of tribes centered in the area that we now call Belgium. That's where we get the word Belgium. Belgae, Belgium. But they weren't just there, they were also in the Netherlands and parts of northern France. They controlled a relatively large part of Gaul. And these are the fiercest Gauls. They are the furthest from Rome, the least civilized, at least according to the Romans, and the most like the Germans, who the Romans hated so much. Caesar hears about this and raises even more troops. The Senate had only authorized four legions for Caesar, and he now has twice that. And he's paying them out of his own pocket at this point. Remember, no one gives you credit for failing inexpensively. It's always better to spend the money and give yourself an advantage. And that's what Caesar's doing here. With all these troops that he has raised, Caesar rushes forward and establishes a forward fort in Belgian territory. The Belgae try to lure him out, but he refuses because in this case, the Romans have supplies saved up and they're ready to go. The Belgae, on the other hand, aren't a real professional army. They're just men pulled from a bunch of different tribes. They're poorly organized and poorly supplied, so they can't keep their army fed for very long. Unable to overcome the Roman forts, they all decide to just go home. And they make a pact before they all disband that wherever Caesar attacks next, we'll all come together and defend it. And by the way, this strategy that we see Caesar using almost every time, blitz forward and then build a fort, he goes back to this time and time again against the Gauls. And why not? It utilizes two of his greatest strengths. One is his personal ability to move quickly and inspire his men to do the same. And the other is his Roman soldiers' incredible ability to build very sophisticated fortifications very quickly. And focusing on your strengths is almost always the right way to go. There was a study conducted where over the course of a few months, they asked some office workers to focus on improving their weaknesses. And they asked another group of office workers to focus on improving their strengths, to work at getting even better at what they were already good at. And it turns out, those who focused on their strengths performed better and improved more than their counterparts who focused on improving their weaknesses. Now, of course, if you have glaring flaws, sometimes those need to be addressed, but all in all, you should generally be distributing 80% of your self-development time towards further developing your strong areas and only 20% towards smoothing out the rough edges. Okay, well, this Belgae pact that they have to defend wherever Caesar attacks next 
doesn't work too well. They have trouble coordinating, and Caesar is moving too fast for this to work. Caesar blitzes through their territory, capturing towns the whole way. Finally, the Belgae do decide to get together and try to do something different, so they decide to ambush his army. Remember, Roman soldiers build these forts every night before they go to sleep. Well, after one march, they get to the spot they have picked out to set up camp and are just starting to get set to building when all these Belgians come running out of the woods. And they're on top of the Romans in no time. They don't even have time to set up proper battle lines. Everyone just has to rush to the front and fight with very little preparation. Caesar's more experienced men are on his left, including his vaunted 10th legion. And they actually manage a counter charge. They push the Belgae back. In the center, Caesar has his sort of normal troops and they manage to hold. But on his right, where he has his more inexperienced troops, they are really struggling. In fact, for a while, it looks like they might get routed. And this is one of those moments where history hangs in the balance. If the Belgae push through here, it's possible that they could crush the Romans. They'll be behind the Roman center and would be able to attack them from both sides. And if they beat the Romans at this battle, they were going to kill everyone in the Roman camp, including Caesar. So things are dire. Caesar's campaign, his career, and his life are hanging by a thread. So Caesar personally responds. Here's how he describes what he did in his war commentaries. And by the way, just so you're not confused, he refers to himself in the third person in his commentaries. Quote, He saw the situation was critical and that there was no other reserve available. Took a shield from a man in the rear ranks, he had come without his own, advanced into the front line and called on the centurions by name, encouraged the soldiers and ordered the line to advance and the units to extend so that they could employ their swords more easily. His arrival brought hope to the soldiers and refreshed their spirits. Every man wanting to do his best in the sight of his general, even in such a desperate situation. The enemy's advance was delayed for a while. So his personal presence manages to hold off the Belgae for long enough. And the 10th Legion had completely routed the Belgae on the left side of the line. So they turn around and they see what's happening, that the right side of the line is in such trouble and so they attack the rest of the Belgae from behind. This causes the Belgae to panic and run, and the Romans not only survive, but they are victorious. And they completely rout the Belgians, who have to come and sue for peace and end their rebellion. And with this victory, it now appeared that all of Gaul was subdued and at peace. This is a major accomplishment, everyone is impressed back home, and the Senate declares an astounding 15 days of celebration for this achievement. Caesar spends some time mopping up, and that winter, Caesar heads back to his headquarters in Cisalpine Gaul, and things have never looked better for him. He's popular back home and totally successful in Gaul. And this is where we will take a break in the action for this episode, with Caesar totally triumphant. Before we end, I want to talk about the way Caesar trained and led his troops. On the one hand, Caesar was very familiar with his troops. With the centurions, who I described earlier as sort of the lowest form of officer, he made it a point to memorize all of their names. And this was no easy task. There were hundreds of them in an army as large as his, but that was very clearly a priority for him. He also addressed his men, not as soldiers, as was customary, but he used the term comrades. He also shared in their accommodations and food rather than sort of preserving a very aristocratic lifestyle, even when on the campaign trail, as some generals at the time did. Here's how Plutarch described the way he would do this. Quote, His soldiers were astonished that he should undergo toils beyond his body's apparent power of endurance. Because he was of spare habit, had soft and white skin, 
and suffered from epileptic fits. Nevertheless, he did not make his feeble health an excuse for soft living, but rather his military service a cure for his feeble health, since by wearisome journeys, simple diet, continuously sleeping in the open air, and enduring hardships, he fought off his troubles and kept his body strong against its attacks. As you can imagine, that would build quite the rapport with your soldiers. And this is someone who is not in great health. Caesar is an epileptic. I don't know that I've mentioned that yet, but he suffered from epileptic fits throughout his life. And despite his poor health, he's sleeping in the open air. He's eating their same rations. He's sharing in their troubles and their hardships. And that builds quite a bond. He also spoiled his men, paying them more than the going rate and often commissioning special weaponry or armor for very notable acts of bravery. In the off-season, when it was not campaign season in the winter, he was very lenient and rarely punished his men for breaches of protocol or minor infractions. But on the other hand, Caesar could be very strict. He was exacting in his training and preparation. He drilled his men harder and more often than any other general at the time. And when it was campaign season, he did not tolerate disobedience. Deserters were always promptly executed, and violations of discipline were harshly punished. This sort of odd combination of demanding exactitude and familiarity was like a perfect storm for creating a bond with his men. Caesar is known as one of the greatest soldiers generals of all time. They loved him. They would follow him anywhere. But as we have seen, that love and trust did not come immediately. Caesar had to cultivate it. And he's a great example of how to cultivate trust with your subordinates when you're in a new leadership position. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. I'm trying to do slightly shorter episodes from now on, but tune in next time to see how it all goes terribly wrong for Caesar and he hits rock bottom and how he's able to recover to become one of the most powerful men of all time. I hope you'll join me next time. Until then, thanks for listening.